right. So as we continue our study in uh, Hebrews 11, uh, you know, I, I said in the email this morning, if you if you saw it, I really appreciated Brandon, you know, covering the last few weeks. Um, I didn't know at the time we arranged that. Uh, that I would end up, you know, missing uh, one week with COVID. Uh, so I'm definitely glad that, that it, you know, God and his, his uh, foresight, you know, handled that. But, you know, one of our principles as a church is that we're always training, we're always developing leaders. And so opportunities like that for people to, to teach, to prepare lessons and those types of things is really important. So I definitely appreciated, um, you know, Brandon's um, diligence over over a whole month and preparing lessons and that. Like, uh, certainly, it's it's a little bit hard to just be transparent. It's a little bit hard to give the keys of the car to your, you know, to your kid, whether they're sixteen or whether they're twenty. Um, you you have some sense of of uh, responsibility yet you know they're prepared uh you know it's not like oh, this is going to be a nightmare or anything like that but you feel a sense of 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 responsibility and so i definitely appreciated uh his his uh but i'm you know diligence but i'm i'm excited to be back and and it's interesting because even the way it worked out uh with with um you know Rahab, Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and so we're going to continue in, with uh, with Jephthah, and um, you know again our hypothesis here is that if in fact ministry runs on the uh, runs on the rails of relationship or relies on relationship, there are practical lessons that we can learn from these individuals who did it, whatever it is, their faith act in such a way that they were mentioned in Hebrews. And um, obviously, no man, none of us live unto himself, and no man dieth unto himself. So today, when we look at, and we'll pray just here in a moment, we're going to look at Jephthah, uh, a committed faith. Sorry, thank you, Brandon. Or, uh, and uh, obviously, this is a, a little bit of the, the foreshadowing. He was the guy who vowed a vow to the Lord that if he would win the battle, he would sacrifice whatever came out first and his daughter came out first. And so as we get into this, it's a little bit of a hard, not going to lie, it's a little bit of a hard uh, uh, topic because of the nature of, of the state of Israel at the time and, and what was going on. But but let's ask the Lord's uh, blessing. Lord, we do thank you for the chance to get together today. We thank you for your word, the clarity, and the, um, the way it grows us and develops us. Uh, but Lord, we do also thank you for... Um, Thank you. I personally thank you for the folks here today and, and certainly pray for the ladies in the program that weren't able to make it physically here today. I know that they're having their own uh, church today, but I just pray for their uh, their continued development as well. And we, we commend this time to you and ask that you, uh, we invite you and, and, and yay, request that you would just be with us today. Teach us as you see fit in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, you know, our verse, our passage verse uh, Hebrews 11:32. And what shall we? Uh, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, and of Jephthah, 
and then we're, so over the next few weeks we're going to look at David, Samuel, and at least some of the prophets that we that I believe are, are referenced here in Hebrews 32 and 33 as we wrap up. Lord willing, we will transition after mission focus to our next study uh, in scripture and so we're, we're praying through that and looking forward to that. So so first I, I do want you to, if you're not already in Hebrews, I, I just this is uh, this is extra credit, you don't get any, this is not really on your notes uh, per se, uh, but, it, but it's a biblical, um, it's a study a uh, Bible study, I guess uh, principle maybe, it's a grammatical principle here and I want to, I want to I want to call it out and we'll touch base more in the future weeks, uh, specifically going into next week. But if you look at 32 and 33, uh, what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah. And then notice there's a semicolon there uh, of David also and Samuel and the prophets. Then there's a colon who through faith subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the, mou- stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, etc. Those are actually references, those ec- uh, that ec- explanation that's happening really in verses 33, 34, and even on to 35, is really referencing David, Samuel, and the prophets. It's not actually referencing Gideon, Barak, uh, and Samson. And the reason I say that is Gideon, Samson, and Barak lived in a time that was different. They lived in a more difficult and apostate time. And it's really important that we understand that they didn't subdue kingdoms. They didn't rot. They didn't I don't know, they didn't bring forth, so to speak, righteousness. They didn't obtain promises and stop the mouths of lions, at least in the same way. And so I, I want to be scripturally careful because we can only glean so much from, in this case, Jephthah's life. We have to be careful when we apply it and we cross dispensations and we apply it inspirationally or devotionally to today, we have to be mindful of that. We cannot go too far in applying this. And, and really it's going to, and a, you know, maybe spoiler alert, it comes to the fact that he vows a vow that he has to break scripture to fulfill. Okay, so there's a spiritual principle and we'll learn from that today, but we need to be very mindful of the context. These men were judges, or deliverers of Israel, not necessarily spiritual leaders, okay? And that's important, and that, that's, that structure that's laid out in Hebrews 11 is, is important. So first, we're going to talk about uh, Jephthah's past. If you go to Judges, and I'm not even sure I put this on there. It's Judges chapter 11, so I apologize for that. Uh, Judges chapter 11 is really chapter all of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 really is is where we're going to be spending our time today we're really not even going to spend much time in chapter 12 uh there's some craziness going on in chapter 12 as well but but uh that's less about jephthah and more about the nation and its its internal conflict but what we can see starting in verse one now jephthah uh the gilead uh gileadite uh, was a man of valor and he was the son of an harlot and Gilead begat Jephthah and Gilead's wife bare him sons and his wife's sons grew up and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, thou art, I'm sorry, thou shalt not inherit in our father's house. 
for thou art uh, the son of a strange woman. And Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob or Tob. And there uh, were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. So we need to spend a few minutes talking about Jephthah's past before we spend time really talking about the nature of his leadership. And in verse 1, we find that he was the son of a harlot, but apparently lived in his father's home. Talk about awkward. Okay, um, so in verse two, it says that, so, well, in verse one, Gilead begat Jephthah. So he, I guess, hires a harlot, has Jephthah with a harlot. And, but then later, his wife, Gilead's wife, bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah. So, so ultimately, the way it looks that Jephthah is the first of Gilead's sons, don't know that definitively, but it appears to be the first of Gilead's sons or children, but not of a wife born of a harlot. And, you know, not all of our Thanksgivings at our place are easy. These have got to be tough, you know. There's mom and then there's the harlot kid. I, you know, I don't even know how to like say it, you know? I don't know if the harlot lives there. I don't know what the story is behind this. Like there's not, it's just plain awkward. And eventually we see that while he was the son of Gilead, when his half brothers, so they share a father, when his half brothers were grown in verse two, they thrust him out and he flees from them. Now, we will see in just a few moment, moments that, that Jephthah is a, a man's man. So I don't think this is necessarily a situation where he's particularly scared of them, you know. Uh, but I think it is a situation where it's time to leave, you know. And that's kind of how he, per, again, I'm just, I'm applying what I believe to be reasonable discernment to the, to the passage. But notice in verse 2, he has no inheritance. He has no inheritance. And, and they, so, so we don't know for sure what happens. It's even possible that Gilead himself has died at this point. Again, don't know that. But that when his sons grew up, they thrust out Jephthah and said, Thou shalt not inherit our father's house. So they were keeping the, the, uh, the stuff the value, the inheritance to themselves. Now, it's interesting because there are spiritual patterns here that man does not have an inheritance outside of the family of God, outside of salvation, outside of being born again. We have no inheritance. Our inheritance is hell. That is what we have earned through our birth, okay? That is what we would get through the death of our father, our, our physical father, uh, Satan, is we have no nothing of any value of an inheritance, right? So we, we were, in essence, cast out. So there's some parallels here. Again, I don't want to get too deep, and every one of these uh, patterns or principles breaks down. But, but there is a type, uh, there is a way that the Christian can relate to Jephthah's situation. We were born in sin, and we have to deal with the unfortunate consequences uh, of that sin. And he was sent out and he had no inheritance. And he dwells in the land of Tob. Um, 
which in the Hebrew word is actually good, which is kind of interesting. He actually goes to a good place. He goes from a difficult uh, family situation to a to a good place. <clears throat> now, uh, Tob is actually further and uh, further north and in, in east on the east side of Jordan. So uh, if you remember, there was a couple of tribes that didn't cross over Jordan, or at least they came over and helped fight and, and went back, but they didn't, they didn't uh, dwell on the west side of Jordan. They stayed on the east side of Jordan. And in this case, Tob is kind of way up on the, if you will, on the border. So this would be the edge of Israel. This would be, you know... Kind of like to liken it to a situation today. I don't know how, you know, it would be like living on maybe the border with Mexico and people that were coming across, maybe that were not just trying to seek um, refuge in the United States, but maybe dealing with drug dealers and people, you know, smuggling things, or or maybe even if you were to use Israel as an example, people are living on the on the West Bank and and in a new, relatively new settlement just across the way. Um, maybe this and another kind of more recent historical example than uh, than than this and in Israel is if you lived in in uh, in Berlin, you know, in the in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, where you you're kind of like right on the edge of difficulty. Maybe if you lived in in Ireland, right? Uh, if you lived in uh, in Belfast, right, where there's a lot of you know people that grow up there, they're tough people. People that live there, they're tough. They don't. I mean, and I don't. Some some are really sensitive to spiritual things. I'm not suggesting they're bad people at all, but but they're tough. Their nose has been broken a few times. They've they've watched people get hurt. They've been able to get past that. And and I think what we're seeing here with Jephthah, and part of the reason he turns into such an incredible man of war and is such a leader, is because he's had to go through times of development. He's had to go through roughness and being hardened. Okay, and so that's why this is relatively important to understand his his history. It's important to see where he's come from to see uh, the context of, of how he leads. So next, we see that he is a mighty man of valor, and it's referenced. Um, uh, he mighty man of valor in verse three. So. Um, so Jephthah uh, fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob or Tob again I don't know which way and and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him so that's the the one part now if you look at verse 1 we see the almost the very first thing that was said about him was he was a mighty man of valor and now this is not we can't overlook this. Being a mighty man of valor is kind of a big deal. These are the men that are listed in scripture as being a mighty man of valor. And, and we need to look at him for just a second. Gideon, who uh, Brandon you know, took, us, took us through, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. So Gideon, again, while he may have had some, some issues of confidence or issues of faith that the Lord took him through, he was a man of battle. He was a mighty man of valor. Jeroboam and Second Kings, um, or I'm sorry, First Kings 11, and the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was, look at this, industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. So we can't necessarily apply all characteristics of all men of valor to Jephthah, but this is the kind of theme that we can get and the kind of 
picture that we can see regarding Jephthah. So, so you know, angel called Gideon a mighty man of valor. Uh, Jeroboam is industrious and becomes a ruler. Uh, Naaman in uh, 2 Kings 5.1. Now, Naaman, uh, a captain of the host of King Assyria, so he was a captain, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. And he was also a, ma- a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Like that's, a, that's one of the, like the most sobering statements in scripture actually, I think, right? I mean, there's a, uh, there's a lot, right? That, but he is a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So, <clears throat> so again, we see that this dude is honorable, that he's, he's led people before, he's great. Uh, Zadok, and in First Chronicles 12, 28, he was a young man, mighty of valor, and of his father's house, 20 and two captains. The dude led, even as a relatively young man, was a leader of men. And uh, Eliada, and of, uh, and of Benjamin, Eliada, uh, a man of valor, a mighty man of valor, and with him armed men, look at this, with bow and shield, 200,000. That's the dude that led 200,000 people. Like, I, I have, through my work, an opportunity to, to interact with some pretty, uh, you know, business, uh, you know, I won't call them important because, you know, but people that have authority, uh, you know, have, have, you know, interacted with our board with people who, you know, the chief financial officer of, of Wendy's and, and again, you're like, well, it's no big deal. It, they really are. They put their pants on one way, the same way I do, right? Well, I don't know. Do you guys jump into your pants? Because that's how I put mine on. <laughs> you hold them up in the air and then jump into them because I feel like everybody puts their pants on the same way. Is that, is that how you do it? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, I'm not getting the validation here <laughs> that I was expecting, but, but there's, you know, there's people who have, have run companies, you know, multi-million dollar or billion, in some cases, billion dollar companies, people People whose net worth is, you know, can be tens of millions of dollars. These people, can, they walk into a room and they have the CEO complex. They have the God complex. They walk in and they command respect. These guys are kind of like that. I mean, leading 200,000 men in an army situation is kind of a big deal. I don't even know what rank. It'd have to be like a pretty... It'd have to be a high-ranking a high general. general, right? Um, I mean, these are, these are men of means. These are men's men that have been there, done that, and, you know, have the T-shirt. So these, are, these, these folks know what it's like, okay? But, so, so that brings us to our rela- first relationship rule. Uh, relationship rule number one, do not let any difficulty in your past limit your ability to do right now. Okay, the the difficulty of your past is guess what, your past. You know your your how you identify where you grew up. I mean, I, I've spent some time with some people. I, I was sharing actually with a with a former boss. Sometimes when I walk in some rooms in the corporate setting, I think I don't belong here. Like. Why would anybody listen to me? Like, I don't belong here. And, and it was a, a female boss. She said, every, every leader goes through that. They may not ever say it, but when they walk into a room, at some point they think, I don't belong here. I don't, 
I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. And and she came from very humble beginnings, both from her professional career as well as her family. Um, And so we can't let the, quote, humble beginnings, the past, define what we're going to do right now. If you have a if you had a tough childhood, if you had a situation that was less than ideal, I'm sorry you went through it. Hopefully the Lord used it in your life to develop you and grow you into the person, the man or woman of God that you are now. But it is just your past. And I doubt it was as difficult as Jep as Jephthah's. I doubt you were the child of a harlot who was kicked out of the house by your half brothers. I'm just saying, and living in a in a contentious land where people fought all the time, like probably not. So don't let the difficulty in your past limit your ability to do right now. And you say, well, why is that a relationship rule? Because what we do is we we put some of those pressures of our past on our parents, on our siblings, on our teacher. Things happen in our life. There are things that have happened to me in my life that I don't want to share on a recording because I don't know if you heard, but I got a podcast now. Um, (laughs) There are things that have happened to me that I don't want to share, but you know what? I will not be defined by them. I am letting those relationships, those situations within that context, not limit my ability to do right now. It's my past. And then that's, this leads us to how he led. So he led in plainness. So if you jump down to verse, um, so, you know, starting in verse, uh, verse 8. Um, well, in verse 4, just for some context, and it came to pass in the process of time. I also love that phrase in the, in the Bible. Uh, if we had, if we had uh, a different series, maybe we might do in the process of time. Uh, that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight uh, with the children of Ammon, because you're the guy, you're the man. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did ye not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Now, at this point, his half-brothers may very well be the leaders of that community. They may very well, because it's, it's, Gilead is a household. It was a man, but it's also an area. Um, did you not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? Why are you now, or you come uh, unto me now when you are in distress? Like, oh, how the turntables, as Michael Scott would say, yes. right? <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, how the tables have turned. Now you need me, but you didn't want me. And so, but look at how, so Jeff is kind of worldly wise. I don't know how else to describe it. He's, he's, uh, he's probably been, you know, uh, gotten the shorter end of, of dealings in the streets. You know, people probably lied to him. You know, he's, he's, you know, things are, are tough, uh, in, in his, in his world. And so he wants to confirm it. And the elders of, of Gilead said unto Jephthah, therefore we turn again to thee now that thou mayest go with us. Like we understand that there's past, but we're here now. You go with us fighting against the children of Ammon. And be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah wants, I mean, he knows, look, he knows the past. He knows the nature of the apostate state of Israel right now. 
He's putting them on record. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head, in essence, at that point too. Not just, do you want me to lead the army, and then when we're done, you're going to kick me back to, to Tob again, right? Um, so he wants to confirm this. And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us if we do not so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head head and captain over them. And that's important. We don't have time to jump into that, but head and captain. Okay, so he's leading them, but also leading them into battle. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So this is important uh, for for a couple of things. He wants to confirm. He wants to make sure that he's not just the guy for a season, that he's not just the guy for battle, but he is, I guess, worthy that he's unable to lead them beyond that. He wants to be. He 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 negotiates a good package here as as a as a worldly wise, uh, worldly wise you know man. So he wants this confirmation of the deal. And notice that that worldly kind of wisdom, the the checking and make sure, continues as he leads in plainness around the negotiation of the problem with the with the um, with the uh, children of Am- with Ammon. Um, so so he you know I think okay I was debating on whether I wanted to do this, but I want to do this. So I'm going to need two volunteers. I need two volunteers. Doesn't matter. I need two. Okay, Christy and. Okay, Brian, come on up here. All right. So, Christy, so I'll be, I'm going to be Israel. You're going to be Ammon. Okay. And you're going to be um, the uh, Moabites, or Moab, okay? So, Ammon attacks. No, oh, no, 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 you're not supposed to. <laughs> walks over oh, okay. attacks, and takes some of the land from Moab, okay? So Moab has less land, and Ammon has more land. Israel comes and says, nope, and takes the land. What Ammon is now saying is, you can't have that land, Israel, it's ours. And what Jephthah says is, this wasn't yours. You just took it from her. Like it wasn't the, okay. So that, believe it or not, that was the, the illustration, oh, but I was hoping it would, and you guys can eat those if you want. Um, so, so literally that's what, that's what's happening here. The Amorites saw this land as theirs because Israel had taken, taken it from them. And you say, Mitch, that was all, that was a big illustration for kind of a weak point, but it's not weak. Okay, because it's an adherence to the word of God. It's an adherence. So Jephthah saw it as Israel's. So now, the, so, so we actually see through the passage, um, notice in verse 12, and Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon saying, what hast thou to do with me that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered and said, uh, uh, answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land. I took the, the, the cereal bar from Brian. When they came out of Egypt, 
from Arnon even unto Jabbok and unto the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands again peacefully. Give me my cereal bar back. And Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the children of Ammon and said unto him, Thus said Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness under the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers unto the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land. We're going to jump down just a little bit. And they went through, in verse 18, the wilderness and compassed the land of Edom, the land of Moab, and, and came to the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon. But came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was on the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, and said unto uh, the king of Heshbon, Let us, uh, and Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land unto my place. But Sihon trusted not Israel to pass through his coast. But Sion gathered against his, or gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And look at this. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the land of Israel. So this was a fulfillment of God's divine intervention. And they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites. Look at this. The inhabitants of that country. That was not their land. They had taken it. And they possessed all the coast of the Amorites from Arnon even unto Jabbok and from the wilderness even unto Jordan. So now, so this is Jephthah, again, say, re reminding uh, the children of Ammon about this. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people in Israel. And shouldest thou possess it? You don't deserve it. It was never yours. You, I mean, you had it for a while. But it was never yours. Wilt thou not possess that which uh, Chemish thy God giveth thee to possess? And there's there's a little more there. Um, but so he's going back and forth, okay? And and basically this leads to war. They're gonna fight. They have a disagreement. The reason I bring and I spend the time on this, and the reason I think it's important, look at Numbers 21. I would encourage you to go back to Numbers 21. In it's up on the screen, but I would encourage you to go back to Numbers 21. Jephthah knows his, I, I, I won't go as far as saying he knows his scripture, he knows his Bible, but he certainly knows his past, his nation's past. And it matters to him. What God did matters to him. Start in verse 24. And Israel smote him, who? Sihon uh, would not suffer in verse 23. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword and possessed the land from Arnon unto Jabbok. This is the story that Jephthah has re rehearsed in the ears of the children of Ammon through messengers. Even under the children of Ammon, for the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, which they had taken, in Heshbon, and all of the village, villages thereof. Scripture's important. It's not all of the land of the Amorites. It's what they had conquered, and now God is giving it to Israel, okay? Um, and then jump down to verse 31. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites, okay? It's not their inheritance, but it was the land of the Amorites. Now you say, okay, again, I, I get it, I get it. But this is the, the command, well, we're going to get to that on the next page. So 
Judges eleven fifteen, and he said in Jephthah, and he said unto him, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Abba. We didn't go into your tribal lands. We didn't invade your country. We invaded the territory you invaded. And that's a fundamental difference. Okay? Why is it a fundamental difference? They didn't take their inheritance. And look at this. In Deuteronomy 2, 16 to 19. So it came to pass when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people, that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou art to pass over through Ar, the coasts of Moab this day. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them. God specifically told the children of Israel not to pick a fight with the children of Ammon, not to go into their land. For I will not give thee the land of the children of Ammon any possession because I've given it under the children of Lot for a possession. So literally this matters to Jephthah. He's like, I didn't take the two cereal bars you had. I probably should have gotten different, different illustrations. I didn't take the two cereal bars you had. That's the land of the children of Ammon. That's your inheritance. We didn't touch it. Because to do that would have been a violation against God. And a dude who grows up son of a harlot, grows up, becomes a man of war, vows a vow that's going to be really difficult. We're going to look at that arguably does the, the, does the unthinkable, ends up in the hall of faith. Why? I think it's because he knows where the boundaries are. I think he knows what's okay to possess and what's not okay to possess. And he basically says, Ammon, you're calling us a liar and you're saying we're unfaithful to our God because God told us not to touch your land and we didn't touch your land. We only touched the land that you conquered and that's different. That's different. I didn't cross. I didn't violate the scripture. I didn't violate, or the nation of Israel didn't violate in this God's command. And that's important. Notice, in, in, and so these are some concepts about leadership that I think are important. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. I've heard many times, unfortunately, this verse taught about your schedule or this about your how you balance your wife and your kids and your job and your ministry. And if you don't do it right, it's an abomination to the Lord. In my humble opinion, that is incorrect teaching. Okay, I don't know that I'd go as far as saying it's heresy, but I don't think you not navigating your schedule well is an abomination to the Lord. This false balance that he is talking about is bad business dealings, right? Because they used to use a balance to weigh out corn or wheat or whatever, right? Notice in verse 20, uh, Proverbs 20 and 23, diverse weights are an abomination unto the Lord. And a false balance is not good. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to teach some high school students and, and I was teaching on the concepts of, of reasonable business interactions because Scripture allows reasonable business interactions. I can buy a car if I own a car lot from Brandon, and I'm just going to use ridiculous numbers, for $500, clean it up, and sell it to Amy for $1,000. There's nothing wrong with that because I have costs associated with my lot. I have costs associated with cleaning it. She needed to know where she could go get a reliable car, and it's my car lot, right? I fixed, I replaced the tires or whatever. I, like. That's a reasonable business dealing. 
The problem is, if Brandon says, hey, the, I don't know, the flubber muffin on it's about to go out. I have no idea. Like, like the, I don't know, a major gasket is about to blow. It's, it's leaking oil in places it ought not to leak oil, maybe which is everywhere. I don't know. Anywhere. Um, and now I go in and I clean up the oil and I misrepresent to Amy the status of a car. Now I've crossed the line, right? So business is not a problem, but not being honest and having diverse weights. And that was what I taught the students. And, and I had different weights and I had hollowed out the weights. And so I literally had, I distributed uh, some oatmeal and some corn and I don't remember what else, that rice I think it was, and distributed it. And I bought, and during the, the lesson, I bought and sold and I end up selling or buying from Brian for 10 cents, but the same amount of weight, I end up selling for a dollar to a kid because I was swapping out the weights and they didn't even know that I was making it seem like what I was buying from him was really, yeah, I got a lot. For the weight that I had but when I sold it to Amy well then I put a heavier weight so she didn't get as much when she bought it right so you can skim a little off the top and that's a problem and, and you'll see why this is relevant in a moment in 1st Timothy 3 7 we talk about um, bishops or pastors they must have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil in 1st Thessalonians that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without that ye may have lack of nothing Jephthah doesn't lie about this interaction. He represents the truth and he basically says, we didn't take your land. And if you want to fight over it, fine. Because I'm standing on the fact that we followed what God told us to do. Now we've got fighting words. Because you're calling me a liar. You're saying we did something that we didn't do. And it's going to come to blows. And, but Jephthah tries in his leading, in his leading in plainness, his very somewhat transparent leading, he leads in a way that, that the children of Ammon decide it's worth fighting over. It's worth fighting over that land. We don't have time to, to jump into it, but what's interesting is, I think, I didn't dig deep, but I think they like that land better. The, Am Am uh, the children of Ammon, the Amorites. They liked the land. They had set up a capital there. That was where the king was living because it's nicer there. What, did the, what, what was the Hebrew word for where uh, Jephthah was living? Good. There was something about that land that was worth living in. And so the children of Ammon wanted back what was theirs, but not what was rightfully theirs. Okay? And this brings us to our second relationship rule. Integrity and testimony in your dealings with others matters and is actually more important than the issue at hand. It's actually more important. If you're going to invade our country, we'll fight you. Okay? We'll fight you because we believe God gave us this land. But that's not actually what Jephthah's saying. Jephthah's actually trying to say, hey, don't call us liars. Don't say, I mean, this is the land that we, that God gave us and it wasn't yours. And sometimes, and, and I don't want this to, to sound wrong, being right, and I don't mean like right on the right side of a, of a conflict, but being in a right standing with God in your testimony before someone is more important than the business dealing itself. And I'll be honest, I don't care how many zeros are there. Like, 
if it's a dollar, if it's $500, if it's $1,000 or $50,000, like our dealings with the business across the street when they were considering selling the shopping market to us before they, before they finished it, it was important for the church to have right dealings and to be upright and honest. We could have tried to manipulate things and we could have tried to force things. And, and I've been in, not necessarily in churches, but I've been exposed to churches who operate that way. And that's not cool. Like no matter how many zeros are behind it, being right, not being right, but being right is more important. It really is. And, and honestly, taking the wrong in some cases is the right place to be. And by that, I mean, if somebody has an, if somebody else is offended and saying, hey, I'm sorry. Like, and Jephthah kind of does that. I'm sorry you see this land as yours, but it's not. And ultimately, if you're going to attack us, we're going to defend ourselves. And that brings us to our foolish vow. And we'll spend a few minutes here before we wrap up. But I, I wanted to spend the majority of the time on that because I think that's why Jephthah is in the hall of faith is because he stood on what he knew was the command of God and that Israel was basically being, you know, called a liar and he didn't like it. Or, or at least saying that they violated scripture and they didn't. Um, so in Judges uh, 11, verse 30, so we, we uh, let me get back to Judges here. So, you know, again, he's going to go up. They're actually going to fight now. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate that they're gonna that they're actually gonna come to to you know blows so to speak, uh, and they and they do. And uh, uh, verse twenty nine, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed from Mizpah of Gilead, and from uh, Mizpah of Gilead uh, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And here's the vow. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now this is technically an illegal vow. Okay? It's a foolish vow, an illegal vow. So he makes this commitment. And, and I, don't tr- I don't like trying to explain away words of Scripture, especially King James English words, but I do like giving some color around them when I think it helps. Another way this doors of my house could have not necessarily been translated, but just trying to give you... Um, some color to it because I, I, th- I feel like the, the words are the correct words but if if you say the doors of my house to meet me that implies it was always going to be a human right what, who, whatsoever comes out of the doors of my house I'm going to sacrifice the implication is it's going to be a human unless you had a dog that ran out first right but probably not so another way we might say it today or maybe might have said it I don't know, 50 or 100 years ago, or the gates of my homestead. Like the home or house was not just the four walls, but remember, he's he's the leader now of Gilead. He's got stuff. He's got access to stuff. So he's got some 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 room. The the messages that have go that go back and forth between him and and Ammon 
take time, right? That's not, the, the, we kind of read this as if it happened and, you know, I sent him a text, he sent me a text, and then we fought. No, it's not, that's not how it happened, right? This was over weeks or months. And so he had accumulated the, the benefits of the leadership position. And so he's probably referring to the first thing that I see when I get home, okay? In his mind, probably pasture land, probably animal, right? That's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm applying some rationale based on the words of doors of my house. Doors do not just imply the door and a house does not just imply the place where his family would have been. All right, with that being said, he totally fails here, totally fails. He had plenty of time to consider this agreement or this before this big moment. We just read in verse 29, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed from passed over uh, Mizpah of Gilead and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed over under the children of Ammon. Like it took a while. He was clearly unprepared for the moment that he crests the hill and he looks over and he sees the armies of, of the children of Ammon sitting on the other and he's like, God, if you give if you give me victory, then then I'll I'll sacrifice the first thing I see or the first thing that, that meets me. Like he should have been doing this well in advance. I mean, I hope Brandon and I haven't talked about this. I hope Brandon over the last few weeks, I know I don't do this, doesn't just throw some notes on the paper and when he gets up here says God, give me something to, to, to say. Like, that's, you know, Eric even talked about it this morning in service. He, you know, he went to shepherd school to be prepared for the time when, when the Lord called him. Like, pre- preparation's a big deal, especially, like, if you're going to fight a war, you know? I mean, what, what commander doesn't consider the cost of the, whether he has the ability to overcome, right? Build a house or to overcome another army. So he, he needs to think ahead and be prepared, but he, he doesn't do that. And vows are very serious, uh, very serious business. In Ecclesiastes 5, one, verses 1 and 2 and 4 to 6, look at, look at how the Lord describes the importance of the vow. Of the vow. Keep, thou, keep thy foot when thou goest into to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give sacrifice of fools. For they consider not uh, not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Where in the house of God, as you as you're connecting with God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. He already knows the situation. He's already ahead of it. He's the God of heaven. And earth, he's like already been to the end of time and back because he's not bound by time. So don't make a foolish promise to God. I think I've shared this before. I believe I've shared this before. When I was in high school, I worked with a young lady who, uh, you know, I tried to minister to my coworkers and she came to me one day and she was distraught. She thought she was pregnant. She said, I told God if I end up not pregnant, I mean, she's, you know, I don't know. 17-ish, that certainly that range. If I told God if I if I don't end up pregnant that I'll serve him. She didn't end up pregnant, she didn't end up serving him. Like she made a vow to God and didn't follow through because it was a foolish kind of situation. God knows what's coming. There's ways to engage God with commitment that's not a vow. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that 
which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldst vow not, or uh, shouldst not vow rather, than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. Like it literally is better not to make the vow than it is to vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? So Jephthah finds himself in a, in a, in a difficult situation because he's vowed the vow. What's the first thing that comes out of his house? Of course, his daughter. Look at verse 34. And Jephthah came to Mizpah in his house, and behold, well, they, they beat him in verse 33. So Israel, you know, wins this war. Um, and, and he comes to his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and that's important. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Um, you know, he, he, the, he has the weight of the fact that he has vowed this vow that he's going to sacrifice something and it ends up being his daughter. So there are three basic scenarios that he could fulfill his vow. Surely that she would surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And um, the whatsoever and it do uh, from, a, from a grammatical standpoint seem, seem to point to the fact that he did not think it would be a, a, a person. It would not be a who. He thought it would be an it. Okay. Scenario one, the daughter is left at the tabernacle to be offered. That he literally takes her after her time where she uh, laments her, uh, bemoans her, her virginity. And it would technically meet his obligation that he could have left her, said, she's no longer mine, a la Hannah and Samuel, left her at the, at the tabernacle and then walked away never to engage her again. That would have technically met his, um, his obligation. The second scenario is that Jephthah actually kills her, but that she's not actually offered as a burnt offering on the altar. And the third scenario is that Jephthah actually kills her and she's offered as a burnt offering either by him or by the priest. Certainly, the last two would have violated scripture, would have clearly violated uh, Deuteronomy 12, 31, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth, they have done unto their gods, for even their sons and their daughters have they burnt in the fire to their gods. So literally, he would have been violating other scripture. A guy that seemingly knew scripture, seemingly knew the story, repeated the story almost word for word, and it mattered. Uh, and Leviticus, Leviticus 18.21, And thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire of Moloch. And there's actually several passages about not letting your seed pass through the fire of Moloch. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. So I have a little bit of trouble with the fact that that Jephthah violates clear scripture when he seems to know so much about Israel's past. But I don't know, because look at the last verse of chapter tw uh, 11, verse 40. Uh, well, at the end of, uh, I'm sorry, 39. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. Again, we don't know for sure. And she knew no man, and it was a custom in Israel 
that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead for a Gileadite four days in a year. I'm guessing they didn't do that just because she was left at the uh, at the tabernacle. I'm guessing they did that because the story was that he killed her. I, I, that is not, in my humble opinion, I could be wrong. That is not why he's in the book of Hebrews. That is not why, because he went through with his sacrifice of his daughter is not what put him there. The reason I think that's important is because God doesn't honor that which violates his scripture. Okay? He just doesn't. He doesn't do that. And I I put myself in, in the shoes of Jephthah and had I made a foolish vow because all of us are, are prone to be foolish at times, right? And I, I think I would like to hope that I would seek God and say, God, I made this mistake. Help me out of it without violating your scripture. Help me understand. Help me do this. Fulfill my commitment to you, but without violating um, scripture. And so I would I would argue that this would make a great biblical ethics class, right? Does God expect you to violate his law or his word in order to fulfill a vow? Um, I think the short answer is no. And notice that in the verses that I already shared out of uh, Ecclesiastes, they would have been sin. It would have been sin for Jephthah. Uh, but there was also another way that Jephthah could have, uh, other ways that Jephthah could have gotten out of that. So if we do look at scenario one uh, as, as, as a possibility, uh, there's at least enough of a pattern of the scapegoat. If you want to go back and look at the offering of the scapegoat, that the scapegoat was left and then was left to wander in the wilderness, right? Uh, and and to, to be to be that. Again, possible, I'm not sure um, that, is, uh, that, that he did that. I think the most likely scenario is scenario two, that he actually kills her, but that she's not offered, that she's a burnt offering, but not offered on the tabernacle um, because that would have, in theory, violated uh, and, and profaned the entire uh, ta- tabernacle. But I made a, a point a few moments ago. Look at the end of verse 34. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with uh, timbrels and dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. God specifically does not allow the lineage of Jephthah to continue. He cuts it off. He, he ends up in, the Hebrew, in Hebrews in the Hall of Faith, no doubt. That's why we're studying him today. But his lineage ends. And that brings us to our third relationship rule. Your foolishness with the Lord can have drastic effects on others. Clearly, in her case, I believe it ended up in her death. But no matter what scenario happened, it, it has drastic effects on the others. Be careful. Be careful when you're... And look, I like worshiping the Lord. I mean, this morning's worship was awesome. I like worshiping the Lord as much as, quote, the next guy. But be careful that you don't make an unsavvy, an unwise, or a foolish commitment to the Lord in the midst of, of that kind of emotions. I, I've been in situations where, I, you know, at, at historical missions conferences or Bible conferences where people make commitments, and I think, wow, that's, you know... I, I'll be honest, even singing the song, in light of this message, singing the song, and I think it was, I can't remember which one it was, but it was about, I'll go, wherever you are, I'll go, wherever you leave. I, I was kind of like convicted, like, am I really, really ready to fulfill that, that vow? Like, I, I wasn't singing it as a vow, but like, 
can I say that? And because words are important. So, so you know, Jephthah dies. He was an, a judge of Israel for six years. And uh, notice what he did get. He died, Jephthah the Gilead, and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. So he at least ends up back where he should have been. He was one of the uh, children of Gilead. He deserved to be there, but without any children and with no inheritance. Hope that was a blessing to you. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, we thank you for the lessons, even hard things, out of uh, out of judges and the the nation being in an apostate state and can you know cutting people up and doing all these things that are just crazy. Uh, for us to consider now, and certainly the the fact that you could have stepped in and stopped this human sacrifice is is very real. Uh, but in the midst of um, people doing that, which was right in their own eyes, um, it was you know certainly you know just difficult times. Help us to learn from it. Help us to apply uh, the scriptural principles to today. Help us to lead well. Help us to uh, to serve well. Help us to honor and glorify you. Uh, in a way that uh, you deserve. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.